Have you ever felt disorganized or had a tough time concentrating? You might be suffering from scatterbrain. This week, we're going to talk about just that and how it's not necessarily a bad thing. We've got Henning Beck with us. He's the author of the aptly named book, Scatterbrain. We'll find out how we learn and how that differs from understanding and what lasagna has to do with it. We'll also explore how to deal with distractions in our daily lives and why the number 400 is so important. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn some tips on how you can better use that scattered brain to your advantage. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to shake things up to make your brain better. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. It happens to the best of us. No matter how much we try to focus, we just can't seem to do it. It's not just about learning new tasks or memorizing new things. Sometimes it happens as you're working or just going through your daily activities. After all, we're constantly being flooded with information. When this lapse in brain function happens, we've traditionally been told that we have a scatterbrain moment. Well, maybe we have. Maybe it's a good thing. Our guest for the entire episode has a very different perspective on this term and what it means. According to him, it's a natural part of life and may be needed to better learn and understand the world around us. Henning Beck is a neuroscientist and a science slammer. He's been sharing his knowledge of research into how our mind works and how to use it to our best advantage. He's already written five books in his native German language, and Scatterbrain is his first English offering. And it is, in a word, awesome. So how does the brain learn? Yeah, the brain is something like a learning machine, you know. All the information that is hitting your neuronal network in the brain is basically forcing the neuronal network to adapt. And the next time the information is coming in, the network is able to perform better and um, work with the information in a better way. Sounds almost a bit like artificial intelligence to me. Well, <laughs> in a, in a, yeah, in a bit it is. So, um, so in some kind of artificial intelligence or, or machine learning, you try to extract that principle to solve certain problems. But in fact, the brain is, can do so many more things. So the brain is able to break rules, to set up new rules, to imagine what if. And it is not only about pattern recognition. Learning is not only about pe- pattern recognition. It is also about transfer and interaction, for instance. But then that would be flawed as well, as you say in your book. I mean, it's called scatterbrain. Obviously, we have problems with the ability to not only take in information, but also remember it. What is the sort of neuroscience or or biology behind the fact that we just can't seem to recall everything? Yeah, that's because the memory is not located anywhere. It is not like you open a brain, you look inside the brain and you say, oh, there's where the memory is. It is uh, how the (laughs) brain is active in a very moment, like an orchestra. It creates music at this very moment. Music is not stored in an orchestra. It is how the orchestra is in a very moment. And same with the brain. It creates all the time. And this is why you forget stuff, why memory, why you distort memory, why you have false memories. The brain is everything but perfect. Also different to a computer, you know? You're, you're talking about artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is not designed to make mistakes. 
but we are able to do mistakes and learning from them. So we have in an orchestra different sections like strings and winds and percussion. In the brain, do we have those different areas as well when it comes to not just taking in information, but also figuring out how to memorize it and then remember it later on? Well, of course, I mean, you have different parts of the brain that have different neuronal architectures. You have different neurotransmitters. You have different types of neurons. So you have a whole battery of possibilities to um, work and, um, and, and work with information in different ways. So um, you, don't, you should not overinterpret this orchestra metaphor. It is just an illustration showing that um, the brain is not a computer with input processing output. I mean, in orchestra, you don't have an output musician, right? And same with the brain. It is how we think is what we think. And this is totally different from everything we know from computers. Yeah. Take us through, say, a shopping list. I have them every week. I can't memorize them. I always forget something unless I'm looking at it constantly. Why can we not remember something as simple as a shopping list? Yeah, this is because the brain is not designed for memorization. The brain is basically very good at grasping a concept and understanding stuff. So your shopping list. Um, Instead of um, learning by heart every piece of that list, you should imagine what do you want to cook? What does the final meal look like? And if you have this in on your mind, it is very easy to have or to buy the, the, the stuff you need for that. And learning by heart, and this is, this is very difficult um, for, for the brain because the brain is not designed to, to remember everything but to understand stuff, and this is something different. And in that context, it's interesting, because if you continue doing something over and over again, practice makes perfect, you seem to be able to almost instinctually know what to do rather than having to force yourself to remember for, through memorization. Does that mean then that understanding and learning really are different entities when it comes to our brain? Well, this is an, this is an interesting question because uh, the neuroscience of understanding is not very, not very prominent. Um, many people focus on learning, but understanding is something different. You spoke about how you repeat stuff in order to memorize it. On the other hand, you are able to grasp a concept at first sight. So how many times had you, had you have to, uh, to, to listen or to see somebody taking a selfie? It takes one or three times, and then you know what a selfie is. And um, so we know from that what we call one-shot learning, which is basically a principle of understanding stuff, that it is important that you focus on something and you understand things at first sight. And this is, must be something different than learning, because as I said at the beginning, in learning, you need some time. The neurons need time to, to process the information and adapt to certain information. This would take minutes or hours or days. But on the other hand, you are able to understand new stuff at first sight within a second. Could understanding be that instinctual capacity we all feel when we just know something, whereas the learning really is that stepwise process of trying to accumulate things and then eventually being able to form those links. It is more like understanding is how we process information. It is about the how and not about the what. And learning is about what we learn, the content, the, the information itself, and then recalling it later in the correct way. Understanding is more about how we process information. And this change of processing information, this is, um, this is what we call understanding. So how we change the way we think, not what we think, but how we do it. Perhaps 
understanding can help us not just to change behavior, but also change the way we see the world because that ideology is all of a sudden being replaced by something different. It could be something like evidence when it comes to climate change, or it could be someone like Greta Thunberg, who essentially is a role model for that behavior change. Well, first of all, I think every change starts with understanding something. I mean, you'd nev- nobody changes if he or she doesn't understand why or what for. So if you look at history, all the big changes started with understanding something. And regarding to education or school, similar principle. You can teach people um, to do something, but if they don't understand the concept or if they don't understand the purpose, they will never incorporate that, incorporate that piece of information in their way of thinking and thereby changing the world. So, as I say, way more important than learning is to understand stuff. And this means that you um, use examples, that you try and error, that you, use for, uh, that you learn from try and error, and thereby um, building up concepts of the world and um, communicating with each other. And this is, this is important because um, human beings change the world, not algorithms, right? This is why algorithms cannot understand anything. They, they do pattern recognition, but they don't do what they are actually calculating. I mean, computers are just as dumb as 50 years ago, but today they are dumb in a faster way. They don't understand anything. And this is what human beings have to do um, by, by challenging their beliefs, challenging their points of views, and thereby doing something differently. When I talk about making a change, I use a scientific process. I have a hypothesis, then we have that experimental design. We look at the results, come up with a discussion and figure out what we did right, what we did wrong, we move on. In your book, I was a bit heartbroken because I saw a much better way of being able to learn to enact change, and that was to make lasagna. What is it with lasagna that helps us to understand how we can learn? Well, it's about uh, learning step by step, like you make lasagna. First, you, have, you focus on something. Um, you, you put some really uh, concentration onto an information, but then you have to uh, do a break, and then you have to do something else. And then you are ready for the next step, for the next layer of information, or in lasagna, the next, next layer of noodles or whatsoever, uh, whatever. So it is important that you have phases of concentration and then phases of, let's say, digestion or, let's say, uh, having a break or let, having the information sinking in into your neural network because otherwise it is an informational overkill. Every, if you throw everything into one bowl of lasagna, it is not lasagna. It is the same amount of information in, but it has no structure. And um, learning something and understanding it means that you come up with new concepts and with a structure in this information, and this is how we basically see concepts and categories in our environment. And just sticking with that analogy, we know that there are different lasagna recipes all over the world. And if someone has one particular type, they're going to be stuck to that. In order for them to be able to go to another one, they may have to unlearn what they already believe they understand in order for them to be able to succeed with the new recipe. Is that the same way our brains work when it comes to learning? Do we have to unlearn things in order for us to be able to have more understanding of perhaps a different concept? First of all, it is interesting that you can unlearn something, but you cannot de-understand something. Uh, Understanding seems to be um, a one-way road. 
And learning always means that you challenge your beliefs, challenge the way you see things and your perspectives, and thereby you can update your memory. And this is why our memories are not always correct. This is why we forget stuff. This is why uh, we can unlearn something and thereby becoming better. And this eventually will turn into something we call understanding, that you make sense out of stuff, that you see a purpose, or that you can transfer certain information to another, to another problem. But interestingly, um, the brain is very adaptive. And this is important um, because if you are not able to unlearn something, you are stick to one way of thinking all the time and you would not be able to think uh, into new directions in the future. Could that then be a way of tackling maybe not necessarily ideology, but perhaps other problems that are brain-oriented, such as addiction? Yeah, well, addiction is a certain, a, cer- a, different, a different topic because the problem with addiction is not um, the organic substance that is making you uh, uh, addictive uh, to, to something. It is more about the habit formation that you have. I mean, it is very hard for smokers to quit, not because of the, the ingredients of a cigarette, but because of the habit you form. And um, it is very hard to overcome habits. And it is, it is possible to unlearn a certain addiction or a certain habit, but it takes a long time. And, um, this, is because, and this is also the case with, um, when, when it comes to, for example, app design. When you look at designers who design smartphone apps, they are designed in a way that you um, build up a new habit, and that's why it's so hard to get off your phones, not because they are making you addicted, they produce some kind of addiction, but they are forming a habit, and it is very hard to overcome that. As I mentioned earlier, we're constantly flooded with information, and even the best minds wouldn't be able to keep up. Distractions come in a variety of forms, from simply being overloaded to being tricked into checking social media. Who hasn't fallen for that one? Trying to sort it all out can be a challenge, and in his book, Henning spends quite a bit of time helping us deal with distractions. We're going to talk about them now and start off with one that you may not expect to be a problem, but might be the worst one of all. Boredom. With everything around us, it seems almost impossible that the brain can get bored. And yet, I I admit, I get bored quite often. What happens when the brain feels bored? Well, boredom is a very bad feeling. I mean, if you look at people waiting for for a train or a bus, for instance, everybody's doing something, looking at the phones or reading a book or a paper or, or chatting, because we hate that. We hate that feeling of doing nothing. And we know there are brain regions active that are responsible for um, yeah, letting your mind go. And when you are bored, um, you're thinking of other stuff that is not um, related to the problem. And sometimes this is really triggering something and, and people are not, um, are not feeling well because they hate that. They hate that feeling of, of doing nothing you know, and forced to, be doing, to do nothing. And yeah, this is why we hate boredom. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have highly alert, fearful. We, we actually did an episode earlier on about the science of fear and that some people actually enjoy it, but most people do not like fearful conditions. What happens when the brain is feeling that, that ultra alertness uh, that is associated with, with fear? Well, fear is what we call a basic emotion, and you cannot control that kind of emotional uh, behavior. What you can control is what triggers fear. 
And when you're in a situation where you fear something, when it's very exciting, and then this fear stops um, eventually, this kind of relief gives you um, a pleasure feeling. And this is really what triggers people to go into a dangerous situation or do something that seems to be totally insane, because that feeling of relief is the opposite of being bored. You're so in the zone, you're so focused, and then it's basically giving you all these, the, the, this pleasure of, um, of being in a safe situation again. So now let's talk about something where we might feel safe, but perhaps we're not. And that is when we're being lied to. Whether it be someone literally lying to our faces or fake news, as we're seeing in social media, uh, we've talked about both of them from a scientific perspective on this show, but we've never really looked at it from the influence on the brain, especially when it comes to how we're able to take information in, maybe learn and develop an understanding. I can imagine that we can skew our understanding in a very bad way if we are constantly being bombarded with evidence that simply isn't true. How, from your research, can you say that bad information, fake news, whatever, affects our brain as we're learning towards understanding? Well, interestingly, people are always looking for the most simple explanation for things. This is what we call root simplicity. Um, If you present people different explanations for certain things, they will always go for the easiest one. And so it is very easy to manipulate people with fake news that are, always have one thing in common, and they are very simple. They um, basically explain a lot with a very simple uh, cause, for instance. And people love that because if you have one reason for everything, um, people fall into that trap and basically focus on that specific explanation. And we know that this is narrowing down our understanding of stuff because um, you're not challenging yourself. And this is super important. We are living in times when it is so easy to be not bored, um, to avoid boredom, and to have a lot of uh, very uh, simplistic explanations for everything. And this is basically the business model of of a lot of of companies. Make it very simple in your comfort zone and present the information that um, fit to each other, uh, fit each other into in a very simple way. And um, it is important that you, you that you break these comfort zones, this kind of thinking that you challenge yourself from time to time because otherwise you will, you will not understand anything. So when we look at how our brains can be taught to learn things that perhaps are not necessarily good for society, it almost seems as if it's its own protocol. They change the information so it doesn't meet the truth, but it gets us into that form of, say, a habit so that we're constantly taking this in, and eventually that affects our understanding. Is that, is that really how it works? Yeah, kind of, um, because we love thinking in habits and in, in an easy way. And consider yourself, and in myself, yourself, we are always um, want things to be, to be in, a, in a safe environment and love our habits. And when we brush our teeth, usually it's always the same way. Um, when we go to work, mostly the same, the same way for commuting. And this is, um, in, in thinking it is always uh, the same because we don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be falsified. We always, always want to verify ourselves. We love correlations and we love if all of our friends uh, have the same beliefs. And this is basically the business model of some, of some companies um, by giving you the information that you're mostly likely to like. And um, by doing so, you end up in, like, in a correlation trap that you're not able to step out of your, of your perspective because you like that so much. 
and thereby it is easy to manipulate people because uh, because people love that kind of habit formation. Uh, on the other hand, people always love if there is some kind of slight change. If you eat pizza on Monday, pizza on Tuesday, pizza on Wednesday, pizza on Thursday, pizza on Friday, maybe the Amazon algorithm will say, oh, this guy likes pizza, maybe a pizza on Saturday. But you don't like pizza after you ate pizza for five days in a row because you need some kind of change. And this is important, um, that you spice up your life from time to time by changing media, by looking up on, um, on websites you haven't looked up before, um, and challenging yourself. And this is important to, to get to a true understanding because otherwise you won't see... Um, the whole concept, but only parts of it. That brings me to something that I found absolutely fascinating in your book. With all the fake news, ideology, and other factors that are disrupting our ability to learn and understand, the one thing that I never realized is that we can actually see it. And it happens to be the number 400. And I want you to explain that for me. Uh, well, um, anytime you get an argument by, by, your, by your opponent in the discussion, or you see a fact, or you see something, um, for a milliseconds after you see it, you question it. Um, the, the, natural, um, the natural answer is saying no and challenging what others said. And, of course, this can be a bad thing because you're rejecting it right from the beginning. On the other hand, it is important that you are able to see things differently, that you don't accept anything or everything right from the beginning, but are able to, um, to put it into a different context and challenging it. And of course, this is important um, to, um, to change your point of view. On the other hand, yeah, people are always trying to reject stuff that is not fitting into their point of view. So it is hard to convince people by, yeah, by, by putting out numbers and facts. So really, when we are at a point where we find ourselves being upset or angry or simply just put off, whether it be from a tweet or something somebody has just said around us, maybe we should give it that 400 milliseconds or let's round it up to a second before we start to react to it. Exactly. Breathe, look at the other person and then answer. Um, because usually um, the first answer is usually triggered by the, bias, by the biases you have, um, by the beliefs you had before, and it's not very, um, not very thought through and not very ra- rational, but rather emotional. Take a break before you answer. It's a good, good advice always. We've been talking about all the different influences that can change our ability to learn and to understand and see the world, which leads me to ask, would anything be different if we were to learn in an isolation chamber or maybe one of those sensory deprivation tanks? What if we isolate ourselves from the rest of society? Well, probably you would die. You would gonna die because um, we know that people and brains need um, input from others. It is not like we are thinking machines and data analyzing machines um, like a computer and we can analyze all the incoming information and then basically find patterns. It is more like we exchange ideas. And so if you put people in an isolation tank, it's not possible to survive because um, uh, connection and communication is key and we learn from others, not from, from data. So it really comes down to being aware of your environment, knowing what's coming at you, waiting that second before you react, and then hopefully having the ability to learn and then base that into understanding so that we have a much better perspective on our world. Yeah, and, and put yourself into the other shoes. 
I mean, this is important. It is not about finding patterns like a, like a machine, like an artificial intelligence system, finding patterns in data. It is about applying that. It is about asking questions and answering questions. And this is science, actually. Um, science is not about giving answers. Science is about asking questions and um, talking with each other and finding solutions for problems and finding problems at the beginning. So it's a social construct. Ideas are a social construct. Learning and understanding is a social construct. And it is not like, don't, don't think that the brain is some kind of, compu some kind of a computer inside your skull working um, without um, detached from the body and only analyzing data. No, it is about communication and um, challenging yourself and asking questions. And this is the best way to learn and understand, actually. It's Ask Class Time, and today we're going to find out how you can better your brain using tricks coming from Henning's book, as well as a few we've discussed in previous shows, such as framing creativity, encouraging curiosity, and mindfulness. As you might expect, they all do work, but how they relate to being a scatterbrain is quite honestly fascinating. How important is curiosity in learning and also understanding. Yeah, well, this is probably the strongest drive or the strongest motivator that we have, curiosity. I mean, this is all the other things you can put down or can turn it off um, completely, but not curiosity. And um, curiosity is always about avoiding insecurity. It is about having a problem and want to get it solved. So if you want people to understand something or if you want people motivate to learn something, ask them questions challenge them, try to find some kind of problem or a mystery or a question that is, that is really triggering something because there is nothing more motivating um, than getting people's curiosity focused on a certain problem. And this is what the best teachers do, right? They ask questions and thereby they use the curiosity innate um, to motivate people to, to learn something and understand something new. We had a show where we talked about relevance in education and how you have to frame questions to be able to generate not just curiosity, but also creativity. And I'm wondering, is that the best way to stimulate creativity or is, are there other ways that we can get our brain to be creative? Well, the first thing that is a great obstacle for creativity is that people are under stress. So if you stress people, they are not creative. And many people think, okay, um, uh, new ideas or creativity is some kind of, yeah, um, of, of it's some dangerous thing because it, people can make fun of you, fun of your ideas, fun of your creativity. Um, you can become ridiculous. So it is important to encourage people to ask questions and then give them some free time to step back from a problem. You cannot force creativity. There is no magic button on your brain you can push in order to spark creativity. There are two things. First, understand a problem. You know that. You know that aha moment. You say, ah, that's the way it goes. And suddenly it's super easy to get to good ideas. And how to do so? Ask questions. The more questions you ask, the easier it is um, to tackle a problem. You, basically, the surface is bigger of a problem. And the second thing, step back and ask other people. Let more people uh, look at a certain problem and thereby have multiple perspectives um, focused on a certain problem. And if you have both questions and other people um, combined, with, um, combined with some breaks and some stepping back from a problem, this is the best approach to good ideas. What about then the idea of meditation and mindfulness? We yeah. know that that can help our executive function, 
But can that get us to a new level of brain power for learning and understanding? Well, that depends on the type of meditation and mindfulness um, training you do. We know from studies that some kind of meditation and mindfulness approaches are more focusing on um, getting your brain into that concentration mode. And this is good when you focus on a problem, but not good when you want to get back from a problem. So the opposite um, procedure would not be mindfulness, but it would be mind-wandering. And we call that mind-wandering because in these specific situations, you let your mind go and you do something totally unrelated. You know that when you are doing some automated routine stuff, you drive a car, you're riding your bike, you're cleaning your apartment, and then your mind goes away. And you have so many different ideas flying around on your mind that suddenly um, a good one is basically connected with a problem you had at, at the beginning, and this is how you get a good idea. It's not by focusing on concentration, but by mind-wandering and uh, daydreaming, so to say. So basically being a scatterbrain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, try, and trying to do something, right? So what would you suggest to the listener, other than to read your book, for a good start on how to improve that self using learning and understanding? Yeah, first of all, consider that the best approach is asking questions, um, not trying to incorporate information as they are coming in, but take times um, to, to digest the information um, that, that you see. Ask questions, ask others, try to see different perspectives, and then try to combine that to a full picture offer that. Because if you're just making your judges right from the beginning when you see some information, you can be 100% sure that it is too superficial and not digging deeply into a problem. So focus on a problem, then stepping back and asking others. This is, that is what we do. And overcome this correlation trap, right? Consider that the business model of some of the most valuable companies in the world is based on the fact that we love correlations and habits. And it is important that you do something else from time to time. Um, not only relying on the Internet, read books, um, um, listen to podcasts, watch TV, listen to, to radio, change media, and thereby broaden your perspective. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has helped you to realize that when your brain gets scattered, you might actually be benefiting from the experience. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. And if you're just finding us today, please check out those other episodes I was mentioning, including mindfulness, relevance, and education, and perhaps one of the best drivers of curiosity out there, Lego. We want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. We're into our second year now and are more focused than ever on what you want to hear. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Deal of Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week, and as always, make sure to show him some sass. <laughs>